Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of The Julia LaRoche Show. We are joined by a returning guest to the show. We are joined today by Carol Roth. She is a two-time New York Times best-selling author thanks to her newest book, You Will Own Nothing, Your War with the New Financial World Order and How to Fight Back. In this conversation, we do a deep dive into her new book, discussing what this new financial world order looks like. We also got into the decaying of the American dream. We got into housing and why it is so hard to buy a house, especially when you're competing against major institutional buyers. And we got into how you can fight back and prepare yourself for this new financial world order. I really enjoyed having Carol on the show, and I hope you all enjoy this conversation as much as I did. Carol Raw a two-time New York Times best-selling author and the author of the new bestseller, You Will Own Nothing. It is great to welcome you back on the show. And Carol, great to see you again. Thank you so much for joining me. Yeah, it's so nice to be back with you, Julia. I always enjoy uh, chatting with you. And uh, now, I, now I got another mess to talk about. I love it. And I know the last time we spoke earlier this year, you were teasing this book. And I was so curious because the time we were talking about the nonsense around ESG, but I do want to just delve into the book and maybe a bit more of the big picture because you talk about a financial war, if you will, um, this kind of uh, World War F, as you put it in the book. So I was hoping we could kind of start, let's kind of frame up the big picture. Yeah, so World War F is a financial world war where you are effed. So the F gets to stand for two things there. Um, and the challenge is that we have a shifting global financial order. It sounds very conspiratorial. It's based entirely on history. So the the global financial order where the U.S. has been at the center of the global financial universe, holding the world's reserve currency, you know, we we're about 80 years into our run. Before us, it was the British. Before the British, it was the Dutch. This is something that changes over on a regular basis. Now, we have a hard time believing that because we've known nothing else. As I said, it's been around for 80 years. We've lived through this incredible period of prosperity. So we feel very invincible about this entire scenario. However, I would imagine that the British uh, before us probably felt very invincible about that as well. As as we're talking here, you know, this is we're recording the week that the U.S. just got their second credit downgrade, this time from Fitch. Um, entirely not surprising, other than the fact that you know many years too late, we have an unwieldy debt load. We have uh, an unsa- unsustainable fiscal trajectory, which has been said so historically in Treasury literature and CBO literature. Uh, the IMF, you know, in terms of you know when that debt load becomes uh, you know too large, you know they say that comes at around seventy to eighty percent of GDP. We passed that a long time ago. We have, you know, this this move for de-dollarization around the globe. So, you know, there are all these signposts that things aren't quite as rosy. And so with that and this new world order, which, again, not conspiratorial, it's on the White House's website. You could go and see Joe Biden's speech to the Business Roundtable, March 21st, 2022, and he talks about this. Uh, but with this shift, you know, if you're somebody who is in what I we, we call the elites, you know, which is, you know, a little bit um, hard to define, but the people who are the wealthiest and the most well-connected and often involved in some of the central planning endeavors, you know, if you're seeing the stakes shifting globally, do you just kind of sit back, Julia, and hope things work out for you, or do you proactively try to control all the resources? 
So I think most people, again, would agree that it's pretty much human nature that if you are well, wealthy and well-connected, you you want to keep that position. And so you've got you know the Fed and the government at this desperate point trying to hold on to their power. You have the WEF and the UN and big businesses trying to take advantage of this shift. And then you have this weird thing going on with big tech who is trying to rent our lives back to us. Uh, as a service or a subscription. And so those are really the players in this World War F. And they all have their own uh, agendas, you know, so to speak. And, you know, sometimes they may work together, but a lot of times they're working alone. But for us, that means we've got to get battle ready and we've got to fight back. Yeah. And to that point, too, because um, you've written three books. And I think one of the common themes that come up in your books is this notion of the underdog. I think that's one of the folks, uh, that's kind of the persona that you write for is getting that persona ready. I think it would be helpful, Carol, if we can kind of revisit, maybe it's a bit of your background too, yeah. and what was kind of the impetus for writing this book in particular? Yeah, so I'm definitely, I, I consider myself the underdog, and uh, and I think you're right. I think that that is who I'm always a champion for. You know, I, I grew up in a family, um, you know, a few generations, you know, into into the American dream. Um, my grandparents and great grandparents escaped religious persecution. You know, they came to the United States. Uh, you know, they were super poor. My father was blue collar. He was an electrician, and you know, he worked really hard to set up and allow me to see the American dream in this incredible way. And I'm incredibly grateful for that opportunity and understand the foundation and the structure around me that let me took adv- take advantage of that, which would have been very different if they had stayed in the, the previous countries where they were all from. Um, and so, you know, as I see this shift and change in a way where it's harder for the average American to seize that American dream where the the change has gone from this abundance mentality where the pie gets bigger and we all get more slices and bigger slices um, or, you know, that the rising tide lives all boats. It's really shifted into a, a you versus me type of mentality, which I abhor and is very against the the sort of free market principles and individualist principles that I stand for. And so as I see these shifts happening um, I like to to do something about it. I like to to do what I can, which is you know, empower people with the knowledge um, and hopefully give them some ideas on how to change that. So I was looking at all these different things happening, whether that be you know this this informal social credit system that has emerged, um, ESG, which as you mentioned, we talked about the last time we were together. Um, things like the debasement of the dollar and the potential for the emergence of a central bank digital currency, this big tech issue, the fact that people can't buy houses and that Wall Street has moved into the market and is competing with you to buy a single family home, the fact that millennials are are making more, but their balance sheets are wrecked and so they have less wealth, like all these things. And I'm going like, there's got to be some connection to this. And, uh, you know, it just hit me one day as it, as it was floating around in my mind, it's one step, one, two, three, boom, you will own nothing. That meme I had saw floating around the internet that stood for anti-ownership, the end of, of property. And uh, you, Julia, obviously, you know as well as I do, being around the financial sector for as long as we both have, that wealth comes from ownership. So when you have these wealthy, well-connected people saying, 
that, you know, you'll own nothing and you'll be happy that private property will come to an end. I go, no, that's not how it works. That people throughout history who haven't had property have been unfree and unhappy and many times have ended up dead. Yeah. I think, Carol, that's a great outline, too, for this conversation. And these were all themes that come up in the book in various chapters. Maybe we can start to explore some of them. And one of those being, um, you mentioned an informal social um, social credit kind of system. Let's frame that up. Let's explore that and why um, you think that is. So let's start backwards with China, who probably has the most formalized social credit system, because I think this goes in steps. It goes from cancel culture to sort of informal social credit to a very formalized one that has, you know, some sort of grades attached. And in China, it's it's probably the most formalized on the planet, although maybe not as formalized as some people think, because it's not done on a jurisdiction by jurisdiction basis. And some of them have number grades and some of them have letter grades. But the basic thesis is the central planners, in that, that case, you know, the members of the Communist Party have things that they want to incentivize and disincentivize. And they do that by giving you scores and uh, putting you on blacklists and red lists. And so basically, uh, you know, if you do things like go and visit your elderly parents, you're going to get a good mark. But at the same time, if you don't, you'll get a bad mark. Uh, if you cheat on video games, you're going to get a bad mark. If you give blood, you're going to get a good mark. If you say bad things about the government on social media, you're going to get a bad mark. And so, you know, these things kind of go around and come into a system, which is really crazy. Um, There's been, you know, you may have seen this video that's making the rounds on social media over the last couple of weeks about this uh, person getting a phone call and the siren starts blaring. And it says the person on the other end owes lots of debt. And we need you if you pick up this phone call to tell them to pay their debt. And I share a story in the book of this Orwellian scenario where this uh, this man named Lao Juan, who talked to NPR, you know, saw his his face on a billboard, like like you know, like right out of an Orwell book, and it said this person is untrustworthy and it had his untrustworthy score, and he was a coal intermediary, and he got completely screwed over when the government changed its policy on coal, yet they still you know made him this out this this pariah. So take that back to the United States because, you know, somebody might be watching this and go, OK, but that's not happening here yet. But in many ways, it is. It's just on a, a less formalized basis. Do you think about social credit? Um, a lot of people think that's, you know, meant to, to censor people's speech alone, but it also really comes after them economically. And I don't think enough people have been making that link. And so it's sort of three different ways whether it's cancel culture or a bit more formalized, but they come after people's social standing. So your ability to participate in society and get financial opportunities. They often come after your job, which is your income that you can take and, and invest and live on. And in some cases, they come for your assets. So let's just look at COVID, for example. You know, Regardless of where you stand on COVID, that ended up into a social credit system. You know, if you didn't wear a mask and you didn't take a vax, people were coming after you. They were showing your picture on social media. They might have been calling your boss. Uh, they were saying you were a bad person. If you didn't have that vax card, you couldn't get into a restaurant once those were actually open and participate in society. So you know, all those things are your social standing that they were coming after. Um, we saw that the executive order that was eventually struck down but either directly or by sort of a, a coercion factor 
the Biden administration said if you didn't have the vax, you couldn't work in certain businesses and certain industries. And so, you know, thousands of people lost their jobs, people who, you know, focused their entire lives on really critical skills. And by the way, many people who had been deemed essential workers and heroes just months before the vaccine was available and exposed themselves all during COVID to make sure everybody else got what they needed. And then they came after businesses, right? They actually took assets. They shut down businesses. If you go up to Canada and you were part of the uh, the Freedom Convoy, the truckers there, you know, they seized bank accounts. And you even had big tech here in the U.S. colluding with the Canadian government. You know, there was a huge GoFundMe campaign that raised around 10 million Canadian dollars. And that was entirely shut down. And when another one popped up, hackers came in and said, you know, not only are we going to try to disrupt this, but if you contribute to this, we're going to leak your name and we're going to ruin your social credits. So, you know, we've already seen that as a mechanism to say, if you're not going along with whatever the given narrative is, that we are going to punish you financially. And basically, if you you take that and say, well, then how does that become that formalized state system? Uh, you obviously have to have the state involved, which they were. And we saw that you know in the Twitter files and in some of the Facebook and meta messages that they've been coordinating to get people deplatformed or their voices down, their social credit down. You need technology to be able to gather this data and analyze it and store it at scale, which obviously we have. And you need to have buy-in. And that was the craziest thing, right, during COVID, is that you had your neighbors and your family members saying, no, you know, I'm going to turn you in. I'm going to tell on you don't show up to Thanksgiving or Christmas, you know, whatever it was to assist with this system. So they've proven that that works. And then, you know, to the extent that we get a central bank digital currency, that could eventually be tied into your access to the money that you work very hard for. And to that point, too, like, is that kind of this phenomenon you bring up in the book, too, where um, people become useful idiots in some of these policies? It is. So this is something I actually um, borrowed and sort of enhanced from a speech I saw by Peter Thiel. He was talking to my good friend Alex Epstein who does incredible work around fossil fuels. He wrote yeah, Fossil Future. Yeah, Fossil, fossil Future. Fossil Future, yeah. check out the book. Um, and so they were having this conversation, actually around Alex's book launch, and he was talking about this model, which I talked about in the book and then kind of you know rewrote in my terms. But basically, you get these good ideas You know, that so- sounds like it makes sense. Oh, we don't want to spread misinformation. Okay, that makes sense. But then there becomes this profiteering infrastructure around it, and then eventually the useful idiots entrench it in society. And these useful idiots, I'd say, get something called ROE, which is return on ego. So they get to put an emoji in their bio, or they get to wear a t-shirt or put a sign on their lawn, or maybe they get a visit to the White House, or they just get to feel like they're part of that group that is just morally right and morally superior. And you know, those are the folks who not only don't push back, but really kind of give you that that push that entrenches this in society without the useful idiots, um, you know, whether they know what they're doing or not, we cannot have these things become, you know, come back at full scale. If we all just rejected it, it doesn't happen. So unfortunately, as we talk about a lot of these ideas, they kind of follow this model standpoint where maybe it's a good idea in theory, it gets completely corrupted by central planning, people extract a lot of money, but it's the useful idiots 
who then allow for that to happen at scale over a long period of time. Yeah. And like, I guess like sometimes we have to like reflect and, and look in the mirror and like, have we been a useful idiot at some point too? Because I got to say, I read your, um, your book, The War on Small Business. And it was so enlightening too, Carol, like the anecdotes and the stories you told, it really made me think like, wait, what did, what, how did I feel back, back during the pandemic when this was going on? Did I buy into that or, um, yeah, yeah. I've, been so, use, I've been a useful idiot. Yeah, no, I, I definitely have. I could tell you I have, I know I have. Um, but it, yeah, it's just like, it's what I really like about your work is it kind of forces you to put yourself on the grills too and really think <laughs> and like, am I, am I thinking independently? Um, so it's just one thing I really respect about and the work. Thank that you. you and, and I think that's, you know, that's an important point that we should underscore for people is that we've all we're not perfect. We're human beings. We've all been useful idiots. We've all been duped. This is a very, very sophisticated efforts. And again, things that make sense on a, a, a basic, you know, human level that get bastardized. And it's so it's OK to have been in that space. It's OK if you're still in that space. But it's to now be reflective and see if you can then identify what's going on and see it for what it is and then move it in a different space. In fact, um, Julie, if I can share the uh, Twilight Zone story from the book, I don't know if you caught on to that one, but um, you know, I think this is a, a really good way to frame things up because a lot of times we see people who are you know running around and they're saying, I'm just trying to help society. I'm, I'm for the children. I'm for you. I'm for the earth. And, you know, I'm a, a big student of human nature, and I can tell you that technology evolves and, you know, the world around us evolves, but human nature remains very constant, which is why we keep having these same discussions, <laughs> these same issues over and over again, and why they say history rhymes the way that it does. So the thing I want you guys to remember is this Twilight Zone episode, where you have the aliens who come down to Earth, and uh, people of Earth are like, oh, why are the aliens here? And uh, the alien said, well, they're just here to help out the people. Of Earth. They just want to help man. You know, the aliens have all this technology. They see that that the Earthlings have famine and war and, you know, they've eradicated it. So they figure just out of the goodness of their hearts that they are going to share that with the people of Earth. So people of Earth rightly are skeptical and they put the alien through a lie detector test and he passes through flying colors they go, oh, okay, well, maybe we'll try it out. So they start trying some of the technology and it starts to work. Well, as this is all going on, um, this person from the CIA starts to work on this manual that the alien has uh, unwittingly left behind. And they are able to crack the code of the title. And the title is To Serve Man. And they go, well, it's a noble cause. You know, that's what they're saying. They're here to help us. They're here to serve man. So sounds good to me. So things go along and then the aliens say, well, why don't you come up to our planet? You know, we'll get you on the spaceship and we'll send you up there. And people line up and they're going to visit, you know, this new planet. And one of the CAA guys is like, I want to go. That sounds amazing. So he gets on, you know, starts to walk up. And now the other person from the CIA has cracked the rest of the book. And to serve man, Julia, what is it? I know it's it's a cookbook. It's a cookbook. <laughs> yeah. And I just feel like that says everything is that we see these people saying, I'm here to serve man, but to serve man is a cookbook. So just remember that next time yeah. somebody is doing something out of the good of their heart. 
as you put it in the book, bad ideas often get sold with a positive or misleading wrapper. Yes. Um, I guess I'll ask you one more question on cancel culture before we move on. Do you think the pendulum's going to swing on that? Do you, because like the economic punishment kind of saying like, okay, you messed up. You, you The punishment is like economic. It's financial. You usually like lose your job, lose a paycheck and whatnot. Do you think that that pendulum will swing? Or what are some of the other consequences of that? I guess maybe people kind of are afraid to express how they might feel or you have less free speech. So here's, again, going back to human nature is that there's something in human nature about mobs and bullying. And when people get into that scenario, right, that, that's it's not something entirely new, right? They pick on the, the poor kid at school who's got, you know, weird glasses and his you know, parents put him in a strange shirt or, you know, whatever it is. So people from a human level, you know, throughout history, Salem witch trials, whatever it is, they like to gang up on other people and uh, and punish them. I don't know why, but that just is a, a thing that, that continues to happen. Um, so <laughs> I, I would like to say that I think cancel culture will go away. But as we've looked at it, the people who were anti-cancel culture have become engaged in it themselves as, you know, under a different rapper. It's no, it's not cancel culture. It's just a boycott. I mean, whatever it is. So I hope there's more awareness of it and that there's more pushback and perhaps that it it doesn't become as damaging as it was. But I do think there's just something in people that, you know, when things don't go their way or when you get too many people together, there's always that desire to uh, you know, to punish someone because you don't believe with to believe the same thing or you don't agree with that person, and I think you know, as long as we stay polarized as a as a nation, um, I think that is going to you know, unfortunately, show up. And unfortunately, we're also seeing that at the business level, as we've talked about with ESG, which is business social credit. So I I'm hoping that at least in that realm. There will be more pushback, and when you know, we see the economic consequences of that, that maybe that will shift. But I'm less optimistic about individuals. But I, I would love to be proven wrong. Yeah, I want to hear more um, on the ESG side of things because I know even in our last conversation that was um, an area that I know you were interested in bringing up. Um, let's explore that further. Yeah. So as we move from individual social credits, you know, in China, their formalized social credit system actually started with businesses first. It's actually more robust around business because in the CCP, as they've moved a little bit more towards capitalism, there are all these individuals who've gotten lots of power and built these businesses that now threaten the government's power. And so they have had to put those people in their place. And so that's where they've started with business social credit. And then, you know, have that be um, sort of a, a warning so sign for individuals. You know, poor Jack Ma, uh, founder of Alibaba. We all know that he was disappeared for a little while. But no, 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 he's fine. He just decided to give up stakes in his company out of the goodness of his heart, I'm sure. Um, so, you know, coming back, taking that back to the U.S., ESG is what I call business social credit. It's a bunch of people who want to influence what businesses are doing. They want to shape things, uh, their political, their social whims using businesses, and they don't actually have a stake. They call themselves stakeholders, but they're not owners. They're not shareholders. They have not taken any risk 
whether putting in their blood, sweat, and tears to own a piece of the business or putting up their capital and putting that at risk to own a piece of the business. In fact, some of the purveyors um, are these you know, very large asset managers like BlackRock who actually use our capital. If you have a pension or a retirement fund, they're using that capital to affect change. And this is not my opinion. This is what they have told their own shareholders and CEOs. So one of the things I did in the book, which I thought was really important, is not only try to take conspiracy theory out of this, but where I could, I let the the people and the entities speak for themselves. So I just reprinted, you know, little excerpts from BlackRock CEO letters and shareholder letters, and I invite you to go read read them online to see what they say. But they say, listen, you know, we think these things are important, and we control a lot of capital, and if you um, are inclined to not do these things, then we will vote against you, you know, as a as a uh, C-level executive or as a, a director. They say these things. So obviously I'm paraphrasing it, but go read what they say. Um, and so it's really scary on a, a lot of fronts. One is just the pure profiteering aspect of it. There's a lot of ESG, which is just entirely a scam. Um, they call it greenwashing. So if you are a fund maybe an ETF that doesn't have a lot of fees to be made, really small margins, you can now say, this is an ESG fund. We're really focused on ESG, whatever that means, and charge a higher fee. So there have been around the globe um, a lot of you know regulators who kind of go, gone after some of these uh, ESG folks that are accused of greenwashing and just, just using it to extract fees. And in fact, the former head of sustainable investing for BlackRock, Tariq Fancy wrote a piece in the Wall Street Journal, which I also quote in the book, that basically said, you know, and, and he's a big environmentalist, that he doesn't think ESG does anything for the planet. He just thinks it's a great way for Wall Street to make money. So that's somebody who, you know, was, was led with this charge and believes very heavily in climate issues, who's saying this. So that's one thing. The second thing, which I think is even more scary, is the idea that they are subjugating the rights of shareholders, that basically the fiduciary standard that has been in place for decades upon decades is now being pushed to the side and saying you can prioritize these other things that are being pushed by people that have absolutely nothing to do with the business. And so the idea that your capital may not earn that same return on investment because it's being distracted and that it's being used to affect change in a way that could be harmful or at least kill some innovation and opportunity from the business is just an incredibly horrible thing. And it, it has tentacles everywhere. You know, it's been pushed for a very long time. It's been repackaged. And in fact, repackaged so often that Larry Fink, who is the head of BlackRock, is very upset we've all figured this out and said at a recent uh, conference, that he doesn't want to use ESG anymore because it's been politicized. Now, it's not that he wants to change the behaviors. He just wants to change the label because we figured it out. And it's not the label that I have the issue with. It's the underlying uh, you know, structure that goes along with it. Yeah, like changing. Yeah, trying to change the language, if you will. Another <laughs> example, though, either you provide in the book about the social credit side of things on ESG, Elon Musk and Tesla being dropped from, was it, there, he was dropped from the, what? S&P. S&P. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. I mean, yet, like, Ex- Exxon was on there. 
And this this was staggering. So yeah. that that's one of the weird things about ESG is when people are like, oh, can you define it? I'm like, no, I can't because they left it intentionally vague. You know, they, we know what environmental, social and governmental like those those headline words are. But what do those mean and what's included? And this is something that shifts on a regular basis. You know, weapons were bad and they were anti-ESG until there was a war with Ukraine and they wanted to you know, launder money through Ukraine. And now weapons are good. So it's one of those things that's very fungible and changing all the time. So when Elon Musk decided that he was going to buy the platform formerly known as Twitter, like the artist formerly known as Presence, I will not call it whatever it's called now, but Twitter to most of us colloquially. Yeah. And, um, you know, he took a anti-censorship free speech stance. And whether you like him, whether or not you think that he actually did that, whether you like what he did with the platform, this is not commentary on this. This is just commentary on the fact that that's what was put out there. And there were a lot of people that were not happy that Twitter was no longer going to censor the voices that they didn't like. They didn't like that this was an anti-social credit initiative. So S&P went and at that point in time took Tesla out of their main ESG fund. And the reason was basically, you know, the behaviors of the CEO. It wasn't because they didn't think Tesla itself was necessarily an, an anti-ESG company. It's a, a green vehicle company. It's probably been at the front um, you know, of the you know, quote unquote green movement. Again, whatever you think of that, you know, when you think of, you know, who's made a lot of progress in whatever that realm is, it's been Tesla. So they they took out Tesla and they left an Exxon, a, a fossil fuel company. And this was a measure to punish and bully Elon Musk for the things that they did. I mean, it was just so blatant and out in the open. This is the world's richest man. If they can use this to bully the world's richest man, you know, what shot do the rest of us have? So I thought that was very eye-opening. And I think it's one of those reasons why um, Elon has gone around social media saying that ESG is the devil. And he's he's right. And he has a, a personal stake here because it came after him in a, a completely you know social credit bullying mafia manner. Yeah. Um, I do want to bring up another area that was eye opening in the book. And that was housing, specifically being able to buy your first home, like realize that American dream. I want to hear because. Did, did any of that research within that topic surprise you, or shock you? Like, can you share some of the findings? Some of the stats in there were quite eye-opening. Completely shocked me. And this is another thing. You know, I've been in the financial industry. I've been covering Wall Street. I'm a recovering investment banker. Uh, you've done the same. And when I heard this, I was still surprised, even though I had been through Occupy Wall Street and had been through this, you know, entire Fed, you know, disrupting risk in the market scenario. But doing the research and putting this all together was, was crazy. So when we go back to the Great Recession financial crisis, obviously, I think people know that Wall Street got bailed out and Main Street got stuck. That almost six million people lost their houses to foreclosures and short sales. Very different outcomes. And then the Fed, you know, came up with this ridiculous policy that lowered interest rates. Almost nine of the 15 years of, of suppressed interest rates were zero interest rates uh, policy and that you know, they printed trillions upon trillions of dollars. 
And that gave Wall Street cheap capital, abundant capital to do what they needed to do. And so I think the part that we already knew is that Wall Street used that money to drive up assets. There was asset inflation, but we don't call that inflation because the wealthy and well-connected benefit from it. So that's good, even though the savers and their retirees got completely screwed and it, it exacerbated non-merit-based inequality. Um, but you know that's not counted. And when they ran out of places to find yields, they went like, "Oh, you know, what, where else? You know, where else can we look?" And all of a sudden, 2010 comes along, and you get institutions go, "Hey, what about single-family homes?" Now, what you have to understand about single-family homes that makes this so staggering: it is the largest asset on households' balance sheets across the U.S. This is how individuals and families make money and preserve legacy wealth. And there's probably a lot of reasons. I mean, there's one thing is obviously it's the picture of the American dream. And I think that's, you know, why it is. But it's also duration. You know, we know that for people to gain wealth, you have to stick in over long periods of time. You have to ride out those cycles, those ups and downs. And when individuals have homes, you know, unlike stocks, you know, they may see a stock go down and panic and sell it a low. But they're not on Zillow every day going, oh, well, what's my house worth today? Because, you know, they're living in it. They're consuming it. Their kids are in school, whatnot. So people hold onto those for longer periods of time. So 2010 comes about and it is the first time that there is meaningful institutional capital in the single family home market. And now you've got companies that are backed by Wall Street. They're backed by BlackRock's and J.P. Morgan Chase and Capital One. All these people, by the way, who are ESG, they're 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 social. They want good social outcomes, which I guess doesn't include people owning their own homes because they're backing Wall Street to compete with you. And so they have gone out and they have bought up huge amount of homes. CoreLogic said that at the end of 2022, more than one in five homes was purchased by a corporate investor. Now, granted, some of those are mom and pops, but it's an increasingly large number of Wall Street firms that are buying up tens and thousands, tens of thousands of homes. They have all cash so they can compete on that basis. They don't have to walk the home because they're not going to live in it. They don't care whatever repairs they'll just, you know, do them. And they're not fixing them up and then selling it to you. So you have a better opportunity to to gain that wealth. They want to rent you the American dream. They want to transfer that wealth from Main Street to Wall Street and take that away from you. And that was just incredibly staggering to me. And so you now have a scenario where people young and, and old are dealing with two different sides of the equation. You're dealing with a market that has too little supply and too much demand, that demand that's being driven now you know, in, in an extra fashion by now having Wall Street compete, which has just made the prices balloon and get you know, incredibly high across the board. And then you have the destruction of individuals' balance sheets on the other side. You know, whether it is through inflation, where people have had to you know, increase their credit card debt or or dip into personal savings, or for young people, you know, this predatory college lending that has been enacted by the government to transfer wealth from young people to colleges and college administrators, um, with you know these these non ROI bearing uh, degrees. You've got these wrecked balance sheets where like, I don't even have enough money, even if I was affordable, but I definitely couldn't stretch to this level. And it's completely killed the opportunity 
for middle and working class to attain the American dream, um, which is something that we should all be very concerned about. Yeah, that that stat that one in five being owned by an institution is wow, um, mind mind blowing. And do you do you so, think so just that- to be, just to clarify, one in five have been bought, so it's not the entire universe. So it's not like all of all homes they own one in five, but. Of the ones that are sold in a given that, year, that are sold. one in okay. five. So this is a, a new trend. So it went from zero to now, you know, one in five, which again, okay. some of those are, are mom and pop investors, so, but it's an increasingly large sure. number. Yeah. So like my my assumption is like when I'm trying to compete, when I'm out there competing, I could be competing against institutional buyer. Yeah. Um, to and one of, those thing, one of those things you should do is you should, in your letter, tell the, the seller I am not a, a Wall Street buyer. I'm I'm an individual. I want to you know keep this for myself. Please don't sell this to a corporation and take wow. this house out of you know commission um, and and out of the, the pool for you know potentially the rest of time. Yeah. Let me uh, okay. Let me ask a couple of follow-ups. Do you think like there's a way to to end the institutional buying, or you think they just found oh there's some yield we're going to stick around there? And then from the seller's perspective too, like if they could get. I don't right. know if they could get more money from the institution or more like I Yep. It's yeah. It's a it's a <laughs> it's a conundrum, right? It, it is. So on the institutional side, there has been some fighting back. You have some housing associations that are putting rules in place because you have to think about it as well. You know, ownership confers other benefits too. If you own a house, you're gonna take care of it in a different way than if you are a renter and don't care. You don't have that stake that we were talking about. You're an actual shareholder slash stakeholder, not a pretend one. Um, so it's it's good for neighborhoods. And so some HOAs have taken action against this. I hate to, to do things like we can never have this because, you know, there are times when people need to rent homes. Um, you know, people who are look relocating to different cities. I'm in a rented house right now because I'm in a temporary situation. So it's good to have some of those in the market. But I think individuals and and associations having some limiting factors around it so it doesn't get out of control. So it's not, you know, tens of thousands. And also, you know, get involved at the local county. They're they're building entire neighborhoods like this. Stand up and say you don't want that. You know, you know, you want the ability for people to come in as owners into your community and to have a real stake in it. That's one thing. And then as an individual, you have to make that decision. You know, is it worth a couple thousand dollars to you? And I, you know, I want you to maximize your dollars, but is it worth that money to have this house go to Wall Street and potentially never be able to have somebody else, you know, participate in that wealth creation on that home again? Or do you want somebody, you know, if you're emotionally attached to it, to to love it and to raise a family there and to have a stake and to benefit from that? So I know a lot of people who are using phrases like families only, please, or individuals only, mm. please, as just a way to signal that that's how they're going to do it. And yes, you are going to take a small hit, but it's like everything else. If we each try to, to maximize everything every time for ourselves, it's, you know, eventually it's going to come back to you in a much bigger way. So you just have to decide what's more important. I'm not going to make that decision, but just be informed about mm-hmm. what that decision means long term, because I don't think a lot of people have really thought that through. That's good advice. I'm going to write that in my letter. Um, so I'm like, nice. I love like picking up all these tips from folks yeah. <laughs> um, as I go to buy my first house. All right. Um, we only have a few moments left. So I want to do 
bit more of that big picture macro view, and then we'll zoom in and do what we can do on the individual level. So going back to the beginning of the conversation, this new financial order and kind of the U.S.'s status globally. Um, we talked about yeah. the debt situation where we are having conversations around the status of the U.S. dollar. Let's hear more on a bit more of the big macro theme. And then the final, um, we can start to zoom in on the individual level, but let's do the macro. Yeah. So I, I don't think it should be a surprise to anyone that we're in a, a bad financial situation. You know, debt begets desperation. And the U.S., government doesn't do anything productive. Um, they can they can certainly quote unquote print money, but they can only do so in a way that that devalues each of those dollars. They're not adding productivity in, say, oh, we need more do dollars to back that productivity. So they only have so many options. I mean, they can take more from you, whether it's through, you know, taxes and fees and wealth taxes and you know, whatever else. And at some point, you're not only does that become unpopular, but it has an impact on how much revenue they collect. Now, this is a big surprise. They have to fight this all the time. But you know, since the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act was in place, um, you know, other than that little tiny COVID blip, you know, for the 2020 year, we've raised more revenue, which is why nobody's taken it away yet. You know, there's something about letting people hang on to their money and use it productively that spurs growth. So you know, you can have extract more of that. But then that actually ends up translating to less revenue. So it doesn't tend to work out so well for people. Um, then you have the ability to cut back on the promises. And you're not only is there the, the $32 trillion in debt, but what I cite in the book is as of 2021, it was estimated that the unfunded liabilities were $129.1 Sure, those have grown since that. So there are a lot of promises that can't be fulfilled on the current trajectory and Somebody needs to get real about that. Again, super unpopular. So, you know, you, you saw what happened in France when they said we're going to raise the retirement age from 62 to 64. They burned down Paris. Uh, would imagine a similar thing would would happen here. So people don't like when you promise them something that, you know, was kind of a fantasy and they believed it. And now you have to tell them that's not going to happen. And so their third option is to issue debt. We've sort of run out of people who want to buy our debt on a major basis. In fact, you know, the big holders like the China of the world have been getting rid of their treasury holdings. Um, and uh, Luke Roman, um, who's uh, forced to for the trees, does great, yeah. great work. He had this really interesting chart which shows that, you know, these other countries have financed our, our deficits for so long, but starting in 2014, that the Fed's really been financing the U.S. and you know, that's why we have this dollar debasement that's increased so much. And so really, the only way out of this for them is for them to print more money and devalue your purchasing power. So I go back to uh, you know the Saturday Night Live skit that I quoted in the book that the Dan Aykroyd is Jimmy Carter being like, wouldn't you like to drive a $500,000 car and wear a $75,000 suit? Uh, because, you know, they understood what money printing does and the debasement of the currency, most people don't now don't do that now. So they're willing to trade that headline number. You're not understanding the implications just so we, we saw with the stimulus checks. I mean, how many people, what are their Donnie dollars and their Biden bucks, the thousand bucks or 1200 bucks that's now costing them $10,000 a year. People just fundamentally don't understand finance. Mm -hmm. We have no basic financial literacy. So, you know, that becomes the only outcome 
And none of those things are good for your wealth and, you know, frankly, for um, the world and uh, and the U.S.'s place in the world. So I think that those are all very serious things that it's going to be very challenging to get serious about. We can. I mean, listen, we could roll back spending to 2018 or 2019 levels. We'd be running a surplus. We could start to pay down the debt. We could change the trajectory. But who has the fortitude to do that? I mean, you saw during the debt ceiling, you know, we, we thought we were maybe going to get a little bit of something and we got nothing. <laughs> we got some token like, oh, we're going to save a buck. Okay, great. That That's not going to help. So um, it's uh, if we don't get, we, there is a path on a macro basis, um, but if we don't get serious, you know, that becomes an issue. And then the other thing that I found during the research, Julia, is that there's always a big catalyst. You know, the, these implosions happen internally, but there's always some sort of a major catalyst. And so not every war has brought about a new financial world order, but every new financial world order has been brought about by war. Um, so there's usually some major thing that happened that then set the stage for everybody to be able to come to the table, say, okay, you know, what are we going to do with debt and currency and whatnot? And so I, I do think we just need to be really um, aware of that possibility. And again, this could happen in 12 months, 12 years, 50 years. I, if I knew that, I'd be on a yacht in the Mediterranean, not sitting here with you in this lovely podcast. But, you know, we can see the trajectory. We just don't know those durations or catalysts. Yeah. Well then, okay, so that's the macro side of things. Let's go to the individual. What can the individual do uh, to kind of, I don't know, reclaim or ensure their version of the American dream? Yeah. So obviously, um, it's going to be very difficult to say we're going to stop history from happening. We may be able to prolong it. So I do think voting and awareness around these financial issues needs to become more paramount. People are getting distracted by all kinds of nonsense, which is intentional. And if we had more people that were focused on these issues, there would be more that was done. You can definitely do a lot more, though, at your state and local level. Like if you think about something like housing, a lot of those issues come at the state and local level. And you can very much get involved there and have more meaningful change to open up those avenues if you, you want to take that. I think that the biggest macro, two pieces of macro advice, um, and you can get the details obviously in the chapter, is one is ignore what the elite are saying and do what they're doing. You know, every person who's telling you you will know nothing or be happy or that there's a climate emergency or whatever it is, is not acting like those things at all. Like they're keeping their homes. They've got mansions on the ocean front. They're flying around in their private jets. Central banks are loading up on gold and precious metals. So uh, Bill Gates and University of Hedge Funds, they're buying productive land. So do those things. Like stop spending on like stuff that doesn't matter and use that money to invest and start buying tangible hard assets. Think about real physical ownership and just copy you know, at a smaller scale the kinds of things that they're doing because they know what's going on here. And if they're doing it, it makes sense. Even like something as simple as lobbying for ownership in the company that you work for. You know, there are a lot of public and private companies that offer uh, equity packages, option packages for different levels of people. I know it's something that KKR has a big initiative on right now mm -hmm. is that they're trying to to get more ownership, um, you know, when they buy come in and buy a company and have had some really interesting success stories. Yeah, they have. So, People, I think, really want that cash today and don't think about it. Like, go in. If you're going to build something, 
own a piece of that, get a stake in that, that can really pay off. So, you know, do those kinds of things and then have a diversified portfolio. And this is, you know, this isn't rocket science. This is something I wouldn't tell you in any financial scenario. This is just generally good financial advice. But the fact of the matter is there's a very different lens on it, right? When we think about the things that are going on with us and we don't know which of these things are going to be the catalyst and what's going to happen first. So make sure you're protected in lots of different ways. And then like the final thing would be, and this is going to sound very preppery, but I would say it's prepared, not preppery, is like if things go really sideways, like if there's a CBDC and you get cut off from access from your money, like what are you going to do? Do you have you know small denominations of precious metals that you can trade with? Do you have you know your guns and ammo? Do you have some food stockpile that you could trade with? Or have you figured out you know who in your community has got the chickens? where you can go and train to some sort of service for that. And I know it seems like that's insane and that would never happen, but I would offer like nobody thought that we were going to shut down a third of the economy either a few years ago. So just be prepared. You know, it's like kind of like if your house is going to burn down one day, you don't wait till that day to come up with an escape plan and buy some insurance, even though it's not very likely to happen. The same thing here too. Just kind of think through these different scenarios and go, okay, if this comes to pass at some point soon, what do I do so that I'm not like surprised in that moment and freaking out and going, how is this possibly happening to me? And that you can get through a period of chaos because I do think for some of these things, they're probably transitional and chaotic as have been throughout history when there have been financial world order changes. And so you have to, to think about how you're going to manage through some period of chaos. Well, Carol Roth, author of the New York Times bestselling book, You Will Own Nothing. Go pick up a copy, everyone. Thank you so much for being so generous with your time and your ideas. And great to see you as always, Carol. Really appreciate you coming on. Yeah, thanks, Julia. And one more thing. You got to buy an actual hard copy of the book. This is this is the, you know, walking the talk. A, you want to own it. And, you know, as we go back to social credit, no one could change the words in this because they're changing books left and right. I know what I wrote in this one. I can guarantee this version of it. If you buy it online, like I have no idea what's going to happen to it in the future. That's funny. I did. I have the physical. I also have the audio, too, because like when I do my morning walks, I like to do the audio as well. (laughs) Yeah. Carol, great seeing you. Thank you again. You too, Julia.